You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Oh, you have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No one! Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I rested a little bit, saw a bunch of friends I hadn't seen in a while, saw some musicals, laid in the sun, played board games, went to a winery, just all in all having a relatively relaxing blip of time away from here. Not that this isn't relaxing and fun and what have you. Um, I also got a snarky bad review over the uh, my word choices and how I speak, which is always just super appreciated and doesn't give me a complex at all. And I've definitely not been hyper fixating on it for the last three days. If you are someone who came here to hear excellent grammar, I would uh, suggest you go elsewhere because I definitely do not have that. And neither do probably 95% of podcasts. So yeah, I'm not hyper fixating on that at all. But if uh, those of you who haven't left me a review or anything like that, if you don't mind going and just hitting the little five star button, you don't have to write a review. Just hit the little five star button. That would be very much appreciated because even when a review like that goes through, it affects like my all of it. So <laughs> reviews like this just drastically affect the listenership of smaller podcasts like mine, um, especially over something that is just how I speak and not over the content of the podcast. But yeah, so if you could please review for me, I would very much appreciate it. I've Babbled on it. We'll have to cut that down quite a bit. Um, so for movie theater movie reviews, for once, I actually saw a ton of movies over the past few weeks. So I'm just going to do a little speed run through them. We've got Theater Camp, which I thought was super fun for the theater nerd in your life. If you like musicals at all, you will love that movie. Uh, then there's Past Lives, which I thought was a beautiful film. Uh, Joyride, which was so goddamn funny, but also incredibly heartfelt. I loved it. If there was any comedy that's come out this year that could revive the studio comedy film, it's that one. I cannot recommend that one enough. It was so, so freaking funny. And then finally, we've got Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which was fine. Definitely better than the fourth one, but it was way too long. I saw it in 4DX, which was very, very uh, feral. I was pretty sure that the uh, 4DX, whoever designed designed it for that movie, was trying to just hurl people out of their chairs because I had to like brace myself with the armrests. And now I have bruises on my legs for how aggressively I had to grip the side of the uh, armrests to uh, not fall out of my seat. So yeah, that's that's what I've done. We've got strike updates. While I was away, the SAG negotiations continued going and talks actually extended to July 12th because they were supposed to end on June 30th, but they did not. So as of this podcast release day, three days from now, the talks will end unless it gets extended again. But the rumor that has been going around, according to the trade papers, is that SAG is actually preparing to strike. So we'll see. It's very possible it could be 
be a late game uh, decision. That certainly certainly wouldn't be the first time that happened. And with the writer's strike, there's still nothing. There's still no plans for them to come back. So yeah, another week of another week of picket lines for the writers. And now let's get on to this week's topic. So typically on this podcast, we stick to facts with maybe a couple like legendary or urban legend stories kind of peppered in. And I'll always tell you when that occurs, if I'm aware, sometimes they'll they'll sneak in because they are so prevalent. So this month, we're going to relax the uh, no legends rule a little bit and go into some of the most famous myths, legends, and yes, even some ghosts that linger around Hollywood, Tinseltown, the entertainment industry as a whole. Basically, I just kind of wanted to do like low-key unsolved mysteries, and this felt like my opportunity to do that. This week, we're examining and also debunking where we can, which was turned out pretty much everywhere, some of the most persistent urban legends surrounding famous films. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. One of the oldest film myths originates back at, well, the origins of film. As regular listeners of this podcast are all too aware, the Lumiere brothers were responsible for the first recognized public exhibition of film, which occurred on December 28, 1895. One of the films shown that night was, to completely avoid butchering the French title, in English was called Arrival of a Train at La Coitra. I think that's how you say it. The 52nd early short film just shows a train arriving at a train station. If you've not seen it, it's a medium wide shot of a train platform and the train comes into the station. That's it. Nothing revolutionary. Well, it was revolutionary in that the images moved. But of course, at this time, moving images was a completely new thing. So to behold, this was quite thrilling. Along the way, rumors began circulating that people were so shocked about what they'd seen that they'd fled in fear when the train began chugging toward the audience, causing a riot in the process. But is that actually true? Did people actually flee in fear of this image, of these moving images? There are no actual records of how the first cinema audiences as a whole reacted to the first Lumiere exhibition, though journalists later wrote about their experiences at subsequent showings of the Lumiere's films. Because after this original exhibition, they had the films showing like basically almost 24-7. So journalists attended those and commented on those screenings. The journalists' reactions were basically that they were astounded at what they saw, but in none of these articles that still exist does it mention how the people around them reacted to seeing moving pictures. Since there are no surviving accounts of this, there is no concrete proof that audiences ever sprinted for the exits, and frankly, it's pretty unlikely that this happened anyway. 
To give you an idea of what this image would have looked like back in 1895, the screen that the film was shown on was only about seven feet wide, so quite a bit smaller than the 40 to 70 feet of a modern average theater screen. So the image would have been way smaller than an actual train. And the image not only lacked color, but since it was still an early film with primitive film stock, it would have also been super duper grainy blown up to that size. The image would also have been flickering because of how the film went through the projector, which was also in a primitive state. So if you think about, you know, for you older people, before projection was completely digital, when we had the projectors and the film cans and all that, it flickered. Like you could especially see it if you go and see Oppenheimer in two weeks, which you should. If you go see it in 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter, go look in the white areas. That's the easiest place to find it. You'll notice that it flickers a little bit. That's because of the projector and the film going through the projector, no matter how fast you put film through a projector, there's still going to be a little bit of a flicker unless, of course, it's digital. So back in these early days, that was going to flicker significantly more because it was, you know, it was primitive. They just they just needed to get it to make a moving image and then they'll make it smoother later on. And of course, finally, there was no sound. So in short, you'd either have to be very drunk, very colorblind, or very dumb to think that what you were seeing was actually real life. So you probably wouldn't run from it. The legend of people ducking and or fleeing when seeing the train enter the station for the first time was so ingrained in the lore of film that it was dramatized in the film Hugo from 2010, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, who definitely knows his film history. A scene in that film shows audiences ducking from the train while watching a screening of silent films. So if this probably never happened, where did the urban legend come from? Well, according to German film scholar Martin Loperdinger, I believe is how you say that, the tall tales of stampeding audiences began to surface in the early 1900s as a metaphor attempting to describe the emotional power of witnessing a motion picture for the first time. Writers reporting on the screenings would regale tales about the train nearly crashing into the audience, but this description was merely metaphorical and not indicative of people's actual reactions in the theater. After after a while, history and legend mixed and formed the urban legend. There was also likely a class commentary at play as well, according to Loperdinger. You see, the fancy rich people who like to read newspapers enjoyed being regaled by the tales of the poor people getting a new way to entertain themselves and barely being able to contain themselves over it. Remember, for the first few decades, film of any kind was seen as a gimmick to entertain the poor, while super fancy rich people had the theater. This image was even dramatized in the 1901 silent film The Countryman and the Cinematograph, which shows a little hick reacting boisterously to a series of short films, including a bit where he runs from the image of an oncoming train. But despite this never having happened in real life, the legend of people fleeing from a Lumiere screening has endured, serving as a metaphor to express the power of the motion picture. Moving ahead in time about 40 years, we've got a couple of super fun myths stemming from the production of one of the most popular films ever made, 1939's The Wizard of Oz. The first one we'll cover is that there is an urban legend that the actor originally cast to play the Tin Man died from lead poisoning from the makeup that was applied to him. 
That actor was Buddy Ebsen, and he had actually originally been cast to play the Scarecrow. But Roy Bulger, who was cast as the Tin Man initially, convinced MGM, the studio that was making the film, to swap the two's parts. There was also a smaller rumor that Bulger had a stipulation in his studio contract that if the studio ever made Wizard of Oz, he was guaranteed the part of the Scarecrow. But this was not true. So Buddy Ebsen would now play the Tin Man. Roy Bulger would be the Scarecrow. So when it came to like doing the look of the Tin Man, it was actually quite a struggle for MGM and the filmmakers to figure out how to make Bulger look like a man made of tin. They tried several materials for the clothing, including actual tin, also cardboard covered with silver cloth before settling on aluminum dust based makeup for the face, which was applied over a coat of white makeup. By the time The Wizard of Oz began principal photography in October 1938, Ebsen had recorded all of his songs for the film and had completed four weeks of rehearsal. But he'd never worn the makeup, despite having done several tests for it during a full day's work, which back then was probably 12 hours plus easy, especially on a film like this. Nine days after filming had started, Ebsen woke up in the middle of the night screaming as he was having trouble breathing, and if that wasn't awful enough, according to him, his arms were cramping and curling from his fingers up. A similar problem was happening in his toes. His wife tried to stretch out his limbs to little success. The actor was rushed to the hospital and placed in an oxygen tent. It turned out that he'd had an allergic reaction to the aluminum dust and an infection had seemingly started in his lungs. Ebsen would spend two weeks in the hospital and another two months recovering in San Diego. Because this had happened to Epson offset just before production had shut down because MGM decided to fire the film's original director, the rest of the cast was not told what happened to Buddy Epson, so they were all just kind of left to assume that he'd also gotten fired. Jack Haley was brought in to replace Epson, could be Halley, I honestly forgot to check. And this time, instead of just applying the aluminum powder over the white base, the makeup artists mixed the whole thing into a paste and then painted it on him. Halley did develop an infection in his right eye that needed medical attention as a result of the makeup, but nothing as bad as what Epson had experienced. But no, the original Tin Man did not die because of the makeup, and actually, you probably know him better as Jed Clampett in The Beverly Hillbillies. Although Ebsen cannot be seen in the final film, his voice can still be heard in the soundtrack in the song We're Off to See the Wizard. Ebsen was not the only member of the cast to experience a traumatic situation involving their makeup either. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, got burnt while on set while shooting her first scene in the film as the witch. At the end of the scene, when she declares, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too, a puff of red smoke appears as the witch vanishes. This was a practical effect. CGI did not exist yet. Basically, what would happen is they would drop the actress down into the stage and then they'd set off like some fire and the red smoke. They got a first shot of it. It looked good. But after lunch, Victor Fleming, the director, the new director, wanted to do some safety shots, which is not unusual. And while shooting these extra safety takes of the sequence, during one take, the flames and smoke effect occurred before Hamilton was safely dropped below the stage. 
As a result, she suffered second-degree burns to her face and third-degree burns on her hands. As if that's not bad enough, it gets worse because the green makeup covering her body was copper-based and incredibly toxic if absorbed into the bloodstream. So Hamilton's second and third-degree burned flesh had to be thoroughly cleaned with acetone. If you don't know what acetone is, it's the active ingredient in nail polish remover or most nail polish removers. They had to clean this poor woman's burns with nail polish remover. That shit hurts on a little hangnail wound or any like open, like it feels like for those of you who've never painted your nails or had to remove them, lemon, lemon in a, lemon in a wound. It's very, very similar to that. But just imagine if it hurts on a little tiny cut, imagine how much that had to hurt on a burn on a second or third degree burn. Hamilton would later describe the incident as follows, quote, I'll never, as long as I live, have anything that takes my breath away like that pain. Unlike Epson, she didn't get let go because they could live without her on the set for several weeks. It's a smaller role comparatively. Also, they were the ones that severely burned her. It's not a great look, though they are the ones that almost killed Buddy Epson. So the studio system back in the 30s was a fun time, wasn't it? When the still-healing Hamilton returned to the set a few weeks later, she was immediately asked to do the skywriting sequence over Oz. Afraid of fire, understandably, she refused to do the scene and her stunt double was brought in. Both the actress and the stunt double had been assured that the skywriting stunt was completely safe. Since I'm talking about it, you probably know what's going to happen. Betty Danko, Hamilton's double, had rehearsed the sequence several times with no issues. During these rehearsals, a pipe that would produce smoke was mounted onto the broom to the back of it, and Danko's cape was then pinned over it to hide it. However, Victor Fleming, our intrepid director, wanted the cape to blow in the wind. So that means the pipe could not be at the end of the broom. It would have been very conspicuous. So the special effects team had to find a way to hide the pipe beneath Danko. So they mounted it under the broom's bicycle seat and basically her legs would be hiding it. During the third run through with the new location of the pipe, it exploded. Danko's hat and black wig were ripped from her head and the force was so strong that the stunt performer believed that she had been scalped. Thankfully, she had not been. It actually took production several days to locate the hat as it had been blown into the rafters of the stage. The explosion had also blown Danko off the broomstick, but she managed to grab it with both hands and throw a leg over it so she basically didn't fall all the way to the ground. And she had to hang upside down while the men handling the wires lowered her to the floor, placing her face down until the ambulance came. Danko would spend 11 days in the hospital with a two-inch deep burn on her leg, and the studio (laughs) brought in another stuntwoman to finish the scene. If all of that wasn't enough... There's also a prevailing urban legend is probably, other than the makeup one, the most famous. And this one involves one of the Munchkin performers allegedly hanging themselves on the set. Given how horrific the shooting conditions were during this film, not just what I mentioned, and I'll probably cover this later on because I definitely want to do a hell shoots again, and this one definitely qualifies. Knowing all of that and some of the other horrific things that happened, it doesn't seem too far out of left field that someone might take their own life on this set. 
So if you're not aware of this one, there is an alleged body that appears to be hanging in the background of the forest about 47 minutes-ish into the film. As Dorothy, the Scarecrow, and their new companion, the Tin Man, skip off down the yellow brick road on their way to see the wizard. The wonderful wizard of us. <laughs> For almost as long as the movie has been shown off the silver screen, basically on TV and home video, this rumor has circulated that in the background there is the silhouette of an individual hanging from a rope. And this is qualified by just the way, because this image, this uh, figure is moving and it's moving very strangely. This unusual movement of this background figure further became more subject for speculation when home video became a thing because people could pause and rewind the sequence at their leisure to further investigate. This led to further conspiracy theories and imagined backstories as to what could have happened. This included that this particular actor died by suicide over his unrequited love for a fellow munchkin. This story really took off once the internet became a thing and the urban legend of the munchkin suicide spread to every corner of the internet. And you know what? I kind of see what they're saying when looking at the scene with the old home video resolution. The shadow in the tree line does look body-like from certain angles, but when watching it remastered, like how it's available on the artist formerly known as HBO Max, this urban myth falls apart pretty quickly because you can see the background pretty clearly. It turns out the silhouette is caused by something living. Thankfully, it is not a hanging munchkin. It is something far less horrific. The alleged hanging body in Wizard of Oz is actually just a large bird. An array of feathered fiends had been borrowed from the Los Angeles Zoo for the, by the production and were then just kind of turned loose on the indoor set of The Wizard of Oz in order to make the artificial exterior feel more real. The figure wrongfully interpreted as a hanging body is in fact an emu or a crane. It's some kind of blue cool looking bird. I'm not an ornithologist, so I'm not positive. But when you look at it with a 4K resolution, which is I'm assuming what's on max, it's a bird. You can tell it's a bird. If you go on YouTube, you can find the old resolutions and people like trying to like, who is it this? It's very blurry. The colors aren't great. You know, technology's gotten very good about digital scans of film prints. It's much better than it used to be. But back back in the day, it was very dark. It looked very abstract. I see I see what they're saying. But with with the current things that are available to us with our fancy TVs and technology, you can tell it's just a bird. So thankfully and luckily for MGM, I suppose, nobody died during the production of Wizard of Oz, which feels like a miracle given how dangerous everything just seemed to be on that set. Like, let's just poison everybody with makeup. It'll be a great idea. Nothing will ever go wrong. So our next urban legend, I don't know how well known this movie is going to be to the Zoomers and younger because I've got some alphas, gen alphas now in my audience listenership. But one of the most popular film urban legends from my generation and my childhood that I remember very well is that of the ghost that allegedly appears in the background of the 1987 film Three Men and a Baby. A little over an hour into the film, the character Jack, who is the baby's father, walks through the house with his mother, 
On the left-hand side of the screen, they pass a window which has a black outline that appears to resemble a rifle pointing downward. It is also possible to see what looks like a human figure in the window as they walk past a different area 40 seconds later. From this, an urban legend sprung which claimed that this mysterious figure in the background was that of a boy that had been killed in the apartment where the film was shot, and this mysterious figure was his ghost watching the scene. The most common version of this myth was that the nine-year-old boy died by suicide with a shotgun at the location, which is why the rifle could also be seen. The myth has been explored in several television shows and has, alas, if you weren't aware, millennials and, and Gen Xers, so I'm so sorry, debunked. How? Well, I'll tell you. In addition to being the baby daddy, Jack is also an actor who in a cut scene appeared in a dog food commercial and got a cardboard cutout of himself from the commercial as a result. It's basically Ted Danson in a top hat. If that wasn't enough, Roger Ebert himself dismantled the urban legend by confirming that the film wasn't even shot in a real location, but the apartment was actually shot on a soundstage. And if you're still not convinced, in 2017, Tom Selleck, who was also in the movie, appeared on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, which revealed a still from the cut scene featuring Ted Danson and his cardboard doppelganger. When you place the image of Ted Danson holding the cardboard cutout and the image of the alleged ghost boy in the one scene, it's it becomes very clear that that's what that is. You can even start making out Ted Danson's features. And once again, if you watch this in a more modern remastered cut, it's very clear it's a cardboard cutout and that's Ted Hansen. So sorry, millennials and Xers and anybody else who thought there was a ghost in Three Men and a Baby. No ghost here. Just a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson in a top hat. Our last series of urban legends spawned from a few late 80s and 90s Disney movies. If you were like me, these rumors were spread rampantly on the playgrounds because we didn't have smartphones or TikTok or whatever the children uh, spread these things with today. I'm assuming it's the Internet. And uh, it basically involves just dirty things hidden in uh, children's films. So it'll be fun. Let's get it. Let's dive in. The first ones occur around the 1989 film The Little Mermaid. Toward the end of the film, when Prince Eric is standing at the altar with Ursula in disguise, the little priest guy looks really excited to be marrying them, if you know what I mean. It's a boner. It looks like the, the, the priest guy has a, a boner. Well, according to former Disney animator Tom Sito, who was the actual artist who created the Bishop character and actually drew the scene, it turns out it's just his knees. According to Sito, quote, the joke was he's a little man standing on a box and his robes, his big bishop robes, are draped over everything so they're covering his whole body. And people are just seeing what they want to see. Well, Tom, you only drew one knee, so... <laughs> but yeah, according to him, knee. Speaking of phallic imagery, on the VH box of The Little Mermaid, several have claimed that amongst the spires of the underwater castle, you will also find one that looks like a penis. Everyone just needs, everyone's just being super Freudian with this movie. 
The alleged offending penis spire in The Little Mermaid's artwork went undetected by the general public for about a year when the film was still in theaters. That was until Entertainment Weekly ran a story about the offending poster in mid-1990 after an Arizona woman complained to Disney and a Phoenix supermarket chain about the alleged Johnson on the cover of The Little Mermaid. See, there were even Karens before the internet. Now we just get to film them. The supermarket chain pulled the videos from their shelves but returned them less than 24 hours later, and the legend of why a penis ended up on the cover of The Little Mermaid was born and spread by the media. If you Google the home video boxes from this time, the penis is just off-center in the middle of the castle. If you've got a dirty mind, it's easy to spot. Trust me. Once the penal Pandora's box was open, rumors started circulating that the penis had been deliberately drawn as an F.U. by a disgruntled Disney artist who was pissed at being notified that he would be laid off once production was over. He'd show them penis. Well, turns out none of that's true. Well, the people were mad because they found a penis, but not the not the disgruntled artist part. The artist in question had also drawn artwork for various other advertising stuff for the film, and there was nothing innocuous or dirty in any of those. The theatrical posters had been done before the original release of the film, but the video covered art with a questionable spire was not created until a few months before the home video released. The artist was rushing to complete the video artwork, which featured towers that were pretty phallic to begin with, and the sleep-deprived artist hurried through the background details, inadvertently and accidentally drew one spire that just so happened to resemble a dick. It was 4am when he did this. I think we can forgive him that oversight. This artist also did not work for Disney itself. He was a third-party hire and was neither pissed at Disney nor was he about to lose his job. He didn't notice the offending spire until a member of his youth church group heard about the controversy on the radio and called him at his studio to tell him what was going on. So, despite not being a deliberate penis, with everyone seeing peen when they looked at it, the Laserdisc release of the film was issued with a cover containing a less phallic version of the spire. Unsurprisingly, 33 years hence, later releases of the film have tended to avoid showing the castle at all. Our next dirty hidden message is an audio one allegedly heard in 1992's Aladdin. Right before the Whole New World sequence, while having some issues with Raja the Tiger, according to some, Aladdin seems to say, quote, good teenagers take off your clothes. This line is allegedly heard as Jasmine opens the curtains. According to the film's director, the line is actually an ad lib to extend the scene. It's supposed to say something along the lines of good tiger, take off, scat, go. These kind of lines are quite common in film and are known as wild lines. And, you know, usually the content isn't too closely paid attention of because they're like, oh, people aren't really going to pay attention. But of course, everyone pays attention, especially when they think it says something dirty. Further, the director claims that the two animators that were in charge of this sequence were also apparently quite religious. Not that that really means anything these days. And this was not their style of humor at all, according to the same director. So it's probably safe to say this was not done and this is just a case of people mishearing the line. Next, we've got the 1994 film The Lion King. According to some, when an adult Simba flops down on the side of a cliff, sending some dust into the air, some claim that the dust particles briefly spell out the word sex. So risque. This is also easily explained because, yes, it does say something, but not sex. According to the animators, it says SFX, which is short for special effects. 
this this is the worst explanation to me of all of them, honestly, because it's like you knew that word was similar to a, a more naughty word. But, you know, do what you got to do. And also with all of this, human brains love to try and make sense out of nonsense, which is why people see the face of Jesus in their toast or animals in the fluffy white clouds or even hearing ghosts in um, recordings. It's a phenomenon called pareidolia, I think is how you say it. And it's what's at play with at least the last two urban legends. Your brain kind of decides what it is. It's trying to make patterns. That's essentially what pareidolia is. But never fear, millennials, now that I've ruined all your Disney uh, secret messages. There was one time that something actually naughty did end up in a Disney film, and it's actually quite a doozy. On January 8th, 1999, Disney announced a recall of the most recent VHS version of 1977's The Rescuers because it contained a, quote, objectionable background image. That image appeared in a scene about 38 minutes into the film as Bianca and Bernard fly through the city in a sardine box strapped to the back of Orville the Seagull. Turns out, a photographic image, so a real image, not a drawn image, of a topless woman can be seen in a background window of two non-consecutive frames, first in the bottom left corner, then at the top center portion of the frame. You can Google it, it's very easy to find. These two frames had apparently been present in the film ever since its original theatrical release in 1977, which was indirectly confirmed in the press release put out by Disney when the recall occurred, although Disney claimed that they were not included in the 1992 home video release because that version was made from a different print. This happens often to avoid wearing out film prints. You do one scan from one, one scan from the other. Disney claimed that the images were not placed in the film by any of their in-house animators, but were instead inserted during the post-production process, so nobody actually knows who did it. Well, somebody knows who did it, but they're not going to say shit. Disney had to recall 3.4 million units of the video as a result. So I'm assuming if those people were still alive that did that, they either got a good laugh or like, oh God, are we going to get busted? But as far as I know, and as far as I could find, they never actually found out who did it. Unlike the previous instances we just covered about the Disney subliminal messages and the hidden stuff... The public knowledge of the dirty images in The Rescuers was not known until Disney itself said something. More than likely, they were just jumping on it before they could be accused of something because it is a full-ass topless lady. The frames in question were not noticeable during a just regular viewing of the film. One had to know exactly where they were and basically get lucky and pause the video to see them. With 24 frames going by per second, you'd have to be pretty eagle-eyed to spot it unless you pause the film on just the right spot. Eventually, they knew that was going to happen, so they might as well just take care of it first thing. So if any of you have a 1999 VHS of the Rescuers that your parents didn't turn in, uh, you might want to check. Uh, <laughs> it might be actually worth some money. I haven't I forgot to look into that, but I think we have the 1999. I should ask my parents. According to several Disney animators, there are hidden details all over the Disney films just waiting to be found. So maybe there's some dirty stuff that we haven't even found yet. Happy hunting.
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I'm having home coffee today because I'm recording quite early, and also the neighbors just turned on very loud music. So I hope you can't hear that, but it's the outro, so I'm not going to lose sleep over it. But yeah, I did make coffee early at home today because I'm volunteering this afternoon. I'm actually recording at like nine o'clock in the morning. So the loud music is so appreciated on multiple levels. Uh, I'm a little snarky today. I did not. I don't know why. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. It's not like I've not done this outro a thousand times. Next week, we're covering the stories behind some of Hollywood's most famous hauntings. I'm very excited. You're not going to want to miss that one. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.